Today's scripture reading is found in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, good morning. We are getting uh, now into our uh, sermon series here on uh, the story of the Bible called All Things New, the Story of the Bible and the Healing of the World. Thus far in our series, if you've been here for the introduction and uh, last week, we've introduced the world last week. Right, and showed from Genesis chapter 1 how God had created the world to be a, a place of goodness, to be received with thanksgiving. So far, we haven't got to the place where the world needs any healing. Uh, that's coming, so don't worry. Uh, but right now in our story, everything that God has made is good. And last week, we went through the whole creation account in Genesis 1, which included the creation of humanity. But we didn't spend any time really focusing on the creation of humanity. So we're going to pick that up today, looking at Genesis 1, 26 through 28, in particular, where humanity fits into this uh, larger story of creation that we find in Genesis chapter 1. We want to think through these kind of questions. What is humanity's relationship to the world that has been created? What is humanity's relationship with God, the one who made the world? What is humanity's relationship with each other? These are important questions for understanding not only the story of the Bible that we will be unfolding uh, in the weeks and months to come. These are also important questions for addressing contemporary issues regarding human dignity and human value and worth. Today, as has already been noted, is Martin Luther King Sunday. And this is a time when uh, kind of our broader culture, but then as Christians, uh, sharing in a, in a perspective of the value of every human being. We want to take a moment to acknowledge uh, the work of Martin Luther King, but also really the work of Martin Luther King, right? The values that have been placed upon human dignity. This is also uh, Dignity of Life Sunday. And so both of these uh, Sundays come together to help uh, show the dignity of all life, you know, from the womb all the way uh, through old age and uh, not depending upon any particular race or culture, but all human life has value and dignity. So we want to uh, move through this text, and I want to connect uh, some of the themes of our ongoing sermon series with issues relevant to our congregation, to every congregation, uh, this MLK Sunday. And so as I mentioned last week, the Genesis account of creation wasn't written to answer modern scientific questions and it certainly wasn't written to address MLK Sunday. It was written to provide a theological account of the world and a theological account of humanity. 
It was written to help human beings in the past, when it was originally written, and then on into the present in our culture. It was written and inspired by God to help us understand some primal and basic truths about who we are, the nature of the world we live in, and who we are in relationship to God and each other. So I want to do two things then with this sermon this morning. In many ways, it's going to actually almost be like two sermons in one. So you don't even have to pay extra for that. That is free of charge. It's a two for one. Uh, first, I want to highlight Genesis 1, 26 through 28, as it presents human beings and as it relates to the story of the Bible that's going to unfold. All right, so that's going to be kind of the first part of the sermon. And then I want to draw out the implications of this for our lives today, especially in light of the occasion of Sanctity of Life Sunday and Martin Luther King Sunday. So let's jump into our story here in Genesis 1 and uh, see where we can go with this. So Genesis 1, 26 through 28 notes that humanity has been made in the image and likeness of God. Now let me get us a little bit of a running start, though, into this, all right? Because we, we should think back on the way that Genesis has presented the creation of the rest of the world up to this point in Genesis 1.26. Prior to this, reading Genesis like we did last week, we've seen that everything biological, every living organism from plants all the way to the sea creatures, to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field, to the creeping things upon the ground, everything that has been made up to this point has been made according to its kind. I don't know if you noticed that last week when we were reading through Genesis chapter 1 together. But you can see this here on day 3 in verse 11 with the plants. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. So after God makes everything, when God says, let there be this and let there be this and let there be this. Let there be sea creatures according to their kind. Let there be birds of the air according to their kind. Let there be beasts of the field according to their kind. Let there be creeping things according to their kind. Everything is made according to their own kind. So when we get to Genesis 1, 26, and God is now going to create humanity, we've been primed by what's come before to expect that when humanity is created, humanity, too, is going to be created according to their own kind. But they're not. They're not created according to their own kind. They're created according, we might say, to God's kind. They're created in the image and the likeness of God. So when all the other creatures were created, they were kind of grouped together by kind. That's not a uh, modern uh, scientific classification of genus, family, species. Right? But it's, it's kind of the ancient uh, way of classifying things. Right? So all the horses kind of hung together as horses, and all the cattle hung together as cattle, all the cats hung together as cats. Right? And they were all made according to their own kinds, to be like each other. But human beings are made according to God's kind. We are made according to the likeness and image of God. So a human being is an earth creature, like all the other earth creatures, but is uniquely made in the image of God. Now, when we hear the word image, thinking of it in our modern context, 
we're going to think of the concept of image in a different way than perhaps the ancient uh, world would have thought of the term image when they heard the term image. For us, an image tends to be a photograph, a painting, a drawing, some other one-dimensional rendering of something. But Genesis was written, traditionally understood, by Moses in an ancient Near Eastern context around the 14th century BC, give or take a couple hundred years. Scholars aren't exactly sure when it was written, but a long time ago. And as a consequence, much of the language and the concepts that we find in Genesis are written in a context that would have been understood differently than how we understand it today in an ancient Near Eastern context and understanding. So whenever we're studying the Bible or any ancient text, it's important to always keep in mind how the text would have been received or understood by the original readers. Just kind of a, another tip for studying the Bible. And in the ancient world and throughout the Bible, the term image wasn't thought of as a one-dimensional rendering like a painting or a sketch, but rather was used as a synonym for the word idol. So we have in our minds an idea of what an idol is. An idol, of course, in the pagan gods would have idols, and the idols would be used as kind of objects of channeling worship for the pagan gods. The term idol and the term, and, uh, term image are synonyms with each other. So of the 11 other times that the term image, the Hebrew term for image, salem, is used throughout the New Testament, or through the Old Testament, rather, nine of those times it is used as a synonym with the word idol. And it means and is referencing an idol or a graven image. The other two times it has the idea of phantom or dream. So the pagan gods of an ancient world all had images or idols that were set up in their temples and in their places of worship. The images represented the gods and were the objects of worship and reverence on behalf of the gods. So to reverence the idol was to reverence the god whom the idol represented. To desecrate the idol was to desecrate the god whom the idol represented. So we can see an example of this concept of image in 2 Kings 11:18 Elijah was a prophet of God in the northern kingdoms and he was critiquing Israel's idolatry of the pagan god Baal and so uh, Elijah was able to bring around to his uh, way of religious orientation the Israelites and they set out to destroy the temple of Baal and his images. And here's what we read in 11.18. Then all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces. So we read here in Genesis 1 that human beings are made in the image of God. Genesis is telling us that human beings were made as idols of God. We are the idols of God. Human beings are the living idols of God. Now, if you continue on reading through the story of the Bible, you're going to find that God forbids graven images. He forbids graven images of the pagan gods, of course. He doesn't want his people involved in pagan worship. But he also forbids 
graven images of himself, which is interesting. He doesn't allow human beings to make images of the true and the living God. Why is that? Well, the Jewish prophets, when they were critiquing the pagan idols, the critique that they often threw out against the pagan idols is that the pagan idols were mute. They couldn't listen. They couldn't speak. They couldn't eat. They couldn't drink. They couldn't move. The pagan idols, in other words, were dead idols. And dead idols then represented dead gods. Anything made by human hands was going to be inanimate and was going to be then referencing or highlighting an inanimate God, right? A, a dead God. And so God, speaking to his people, says to them, don't make any idols of me. Because any idols that you're going to make of me are going to be dead idols. And then what is that saying about the true and living God? And so God doesn't want his people making idols of him, also because he's already made his idol. God himself has made his own idol in making human beings. And so human beings then are the living, breathing, moving, speaking idols of the living, moving, moving, breathing, speaking, living, true God. Jeremiah 10, 14 speaks of this kind of castigation of the, uh, of the uh, pagan gods. And Jeremiah says this, Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They're dead images representing dead gods. But when God makes his own image, his own idol, he breathes in to the image the breath of life. We find that in Genesis 2. God breathes into his, his idol and makes it a living image so that the living image represents the living God. God made his own living idol. That's what human beings are. But we don't yet have the full picture of what Genesis is presenting to us about the nature of humanity if we think of Adam and Eve merely as representing God, that Adam and Eve are just representatives of God. It's true that we represent God, but Genesis is going further. In the ancient world, when the term image of God was used to refer to a living human being, so the term image of God would get used to refer to the idols that are made of stone or wood or gold or silver that sat in the temples, right? Those would be images of the God, right? But when the term image of God was used to refer to a living human being, that person was always the king. In other words, not just anyone would be referred to as an image of the God. Not the priests of the God, not the worshipers of the God, not the prophets of the God. Only the kings would be called the image of God. The term image of God, when used of a human being, was then always a royal title. It was a way of referring to the king. So we can think about it like this. We got the king of Babylon, let's say, and perhaps I am a herald of the king of Babylon, and you have all gathered at some banquet, and I'm going to introduce the king of Babylon into the room. And so I might say, I present to you the king of Babylon, emperor of the great plains, conqueror of the mountains, master of the great seas, and the image and likeness of the great God. And then in walks the king of Babylon. 
He is the image and likeness of the great God as the king. So when Genesis presents Adam and Eve as made in the image and likeness of God, the original readers would have immediately understood or have seen humanity's connection to royalty. Or we could say it like this, very pointedly and plainly. Genesis 1 presents Adam and Eve as the king and queen of the world. Which, of course, makes sense then in what follows here in this text. We'll continue looking on in our text. Verse 26 says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make man, Adam and Eve, as the king and queen. And then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and so forth. Right? The king had dominion, just like Adam and Eve were given dominion. It's what we would expect to see of, the, uh, of what is given to the king and to the queen. God himself had finished his work of creation by the end of day six. In fact, humanity is the, the final, ultimate creative act of God. But apparently, there is still more work to be done in the world. Creation, we read, needed subduing. Look at verse 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. The world that God had made needed to be ruled and brought to its God-ordained potential. It couldn't get to where God intended it to go on its own. Whatever very good meant in terms of describing the world, it didn't mean totally finished with nothing left needed doing. So we miss the point of what Genesis is telling us about humanity if we think that God created humanity as happy, humble, simple gardeners placed upon earth to enjoy its bounty just like every other contented earth creature. That's to miss how Genesis is presenting humanity to us. We're going to have to blow off a bit of the cultural dust in order to see this text clearly for what it is. But when Genesis presents Adam and Eve as made in the image of God, and when we read that they are given dominion over the whole world with instructions to go forth and subdue it, any ancient reader would have immediately seen that Genesis was presenting Adam and Eve as the lords of the earth as the king and queen of the world. Now, this understanding of humanity will be foundational to our understanding of the story of the Bible as it unfolds. If we fail to understand humanity's royal status and humanity's sovereign relationship with the rest of creation, we're not going to understand the crisis that is about to unfold for us next week in chapter 3. So the punchline of Genesis 1, as it relates to the larger story of the Bible, is that when our story begins here, we are presented with a king and queen who have been given royal dominion over all that God has made and commissioned with the royal duty of bringing God's rule to the whole earth. All right, so that was the first sermon. That was for free. Now we're going to move into our second sermon, which is connected to the first sermon. We're going to build off of it as we think about issues surrounding race and dignity and human value. 
So let's dig a little deeper here and find some of the connections that we can take from this account of creation on into our current context. Along those lines, there's another aspect of this text that I want to highlight. I've already noted that the term image of God, when used of a human being, was commonly understood in the ancient world as a royal title, something given only to the king, which means this. That in the ancient world, only the king was believed to exist in the image of God. The rest of humanity was thought to have, have had more mundane and less illustrious origins. It was thought that the king came down from heaven as a gift from the gods. He was from the divine family. And though he was born of a woman just like all other human beings, his real essence, his real, uh, his real identity was from the gods. And so he was the image of the god or the gods given down to earth to take care of the god's world on behalf of the gods. The other human beings were considered like god's cattle. Right, they were creatures just like every other creature. And the job of the king in his royal pedigree going back to the gods was to take care of the other earth creatures, including the other human beings. The king came down from heaven, from the gods. The regular humans came up from the ground, from the earth. So the term image of God not only marked out the king, but also separated the king from his fellow man and made him greater and better than his fellow man. The person existing in the image of God was deemed greater, higher, and more exalted than other mere humans. Now, given this understanding of the image of God and its connection to royalty and Adam and Eve being presented as the king and queen of the world, we would be justified, if we were ancient readers, in supposing the same dynamic exists between Adam and Eve here and the rest of humanity down here. But Genesis actually makes a rather startling break with the other ancient cultures. Genesis democratizes this royal title and gives this royal title to all human beings, not just to Adam and Eve. As Genesis unfolds, we see that the term image of God, this royal title, is not limited to Adam and Eve. It is universally ascribed to all people. So in Genesis chapter 9, you don't need to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 9, the Lord is speaking to Noah after the great flood. And the Lord is saying to Noah that you shall not kill each other. And the, the reason, though, that is given, the prohibition against murder, is based on the idea that all human beings, not just some select few, but all human beings share in the image of God. To strike out against one bearing the image of God was to strike out against God himself. Therefore, thou shalt not murder, because man is made in the image of God. Man occupies, all human beings occupy, a royal status in God's creation, and thus all human beings equally derive their value, their worth, and their dignity from the one in whose image they exist. This idea then serves as the Bible's foundational starting point. 
right as we begin to think about who, who humanity is in relation to the world, to God, and to each other, this idea serves as the Bible's foundational starting point for humanity's shared equality and worth in the eyes of each other and of God. According to the Bible, human dignity and worth isn't sourced in our mutual creatureliness. It isn't grounded in what we have in common with the rest of the natural world. We have much in common with the other living creatures. We have lungs. We have brains. We've got hearts. We've got even opposable thumbs, right? So we share that is much in common with much of the natural world. But human beings alone, all human beings, have been graced by God with a share in his image and his likeness. And this is why intuitively, even if we don't always think it through, but intuitively we ascribe value and dignity to human beings in ways that we do not to the other creatures that God has made. We value and give a higher sense of worth to human beings than we do, say, to cats. Now, some of you like your cats. I have no problem with cats, as far as I want to share with you <laughs> about that. But if your house was burning down, and you had a child and a cat, and you had to choose between the two as to which you were going to rush back in and save, and if you chose your cat over your child, we would all rightly be horrified, right? That you valued an animal over a human being, because intuitively, we grant dignity and worth to human beings more than we do to the other animals in the created order. This is not to say that we should be mean to the other animals or abusive to the other animals, but we're not the same as other animals. Our value and our worth comes from the one whom we represent, the one in whose image we exist. And this basic understanding applies to all human beings not just a select, privileged few. The ancient world had a view of humanity in which some human beings were better or worth more than other human beings. But then Genesis comes along and insists that all human beings are of royal descent, that there is no hierarchy or distinction between the king and his subjects in terms of value and worth. All human beings find their value and worth in God. And thus, all human beings are equal in dignity and worth. So the glory of the Bible's vision of humanity is that it transcends culture, transcends skin pigment, it transcends language or social status. All of these are irrelevant when it comes to our shared dignity and our value as human beings. Now... Last week, I introduced a couple of ditches that we can fall into. I've got a couple more ditches for you this morning that I'm going to try to keep you out of. Let me start, as we think about this general principle that the Bible gives us about the shared value uh, or the shared dignity and worth that we all have as human beings. Let me think about a, help you think about a couple of ditches we can fall into. We've got to start with the ditch on the right. I think this is the same ditch of the ancient Near Eastern context in which the Bible was written. This is when we are prone to view some human beings as worth more than other human beings. 
Perhaps we do this from religious perspective, like the ancient pagan religious system who viewed the king as somehow uniquely identified with the god or the gods, and so therefore worth more than the other people who weren't uniquely identified with the god or the gods. We fundamentally deny, when we do this, an equal participation in the image of God. Athanasius, who's one of my favorite church fathers, he wrote a book, uh, a treatise about the incarnation in which he discussed Jesus' coming to earth and taking upon himself humanity. And in that book, he spends some time talking at the beginning about the image of God. Very insightful. He says this, that when we were first created, as we see in Genesis 1, we shared our creatureliness with the beasts. The beasts are come up from the dust. Adam was also created from the dust. So we come up from the dust, and the beasts return back to the dust. They're prone to disillusion and decay, Athanasius says. But God didn't want that to be true of human beings. He didn't want human beings to be prone to dissolution and decay. And so God, in order to prevent us from just returning back into the dust like the animals, he gave us a share in his immortality by placing his image upon us like a garment or like a cloak. So it's what makes us distinct from other creatures with whom we share a lot of biological similarities, right? We share all the biological similarities, but we have the image of God upon us, which makes us distinct from the creatures. It raises us up above the beasts, gives us our immortality and our humanity. But Athanasius goes on to say, in our folly, we didn't want to wear God's image, we didn't want the cloak that he had placed upon us. We wanted to be our own image. We wanted to be according to our own kind. And so in our rebellion against God, we have been trying to take off his image. We've been trying to unzip and wiggle out from underneath the image that he has placed upon us. And when we succeed, Athanasius says, we end up becoming like the creatures that don't have the image of God. Interestingly, when you look through the New Testament, really through the Old Testament both, that many of the ways that it describes the effect of sin in our life is it turns us back into beasts, right? We're, we're shedding the image of God, the thing that makes us different than the animals. We are dehumanizing ourselves when we dislocate our connection back to God. Athanasius's point in this is that this is what we do to ourselves when we choose to reject God's image, but it struck me as I was thinking about this sermon and the way that uh, this ties in to the theme of MLK, it struck me that we do this to others just as much as we do it to ourselves. When we see people who we think are less valuable, who we don't think should deserve the same dignity and merit the same respect that we think we should have for ourselves. We are taking the image of God off of them, as it were. We are trying to see them independent of the image of God. We are essentially dehumanizing them. And this stands against everything that the Bible gives to us and presents to us in Genesis chapter 1 about the nature of humanity and our shared value in the image and likeness of God. So the ditch on the right is when we dehumanize people by denying them a shared participation in the image of God equal with ourselves or whatever in-group that we think of. The ditch on the left, ironically, moves in the opposite direction but ends in the same place. 
our broader secular culture, at least, say, the culture on the left, is on a quest to achieve harmony between the diverse cultures and races of our society. Now, this is very much in vogue in our broader mainstream culture. But generally, what we see in these efforts is a striving for unity between the races based on our shared creatureliness, apart from some higher unifying reality. God does not factor meaningfully into the question about racial, racial conciliation and dignity and worth. We see this, I think, in our own village here in Oak Park. I think we see this quite a bit in the high school. If you're a student uh, at OPRF, you get a heavy dose about the kind of shared dignity and the shared value and the shared worth of, of all people. Right? But God is not a part of that conversation. God is left out of that conversation. It's an effort to achieve unity and harmony and conciliation without God. But the Bible's vision of racial equality and unity is based not merely on our shared humanity, but in our shared humanity's equal participation in God's image. God is the one who stands above us all. God is the one in whom all humanity is united. God is the great ground of all being. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the Apostle Paul tells us. He is the one that gives purpose and dignity to every human being because every human being participates equally in his image and likeness. Our shared participation in God justifies legitimatizes, makes sense of all efforts at racial harmony and conciliation. Without God as the basis of our equality, there can be no inherent value to humanity that transcends our earthly status. On what basis are we asking people to care about others who seem so very different from us? Why should we care about equality? If we are merely the product of random happenstance with no real purpose or trajectory, and if we too will one day go extinct, just like all the creatures before us, then we don't really have any more value or worth than any other creature that has gone extinct before us. We don't have any more value or worth than any other primate or cow or lizard. If there is nothing distinct about human beings then why should the universe really care what happens to us? And if the universe doesn't care about what happens to us, why should we care about what happens to us? There can be no moral or philosophical basis for any of it. It is a futile and failed project apart from the higher reality of God that provides the unity that binds us all together. I so appreciate the value and the impulses of the political left when it comes to equality. But apart from God, it can never succeed. Ironically, if you know much about the history of World War II, there were two tremendous powers in that conflict. One was Adolf Hitler's Germany. It's a fascist Germany. And it had fallen strongly and deeply into the ditch on the right. 
that some humans were worth more than other humans, that some humans weren't even human. And the fascist ditch on the right was embodied in Adolf Hitler's impulses. But then just as ironically, the great foe of fascism was Stalin. Hitler hated Stalin. He hated communist Russia. He thought communism was the great plague and curse. And communism's impulse is not, at least on the surface, to separate the humanity in strata like that, but to say that we're all equal, that we're all the same. But both Adolf Hitler's Germany and Joseph Stalin's communism sought their objectives independent of God. God was not a factor in either agenda. And both the ditch on the right and the ditch on the left should be like that, right? Both of them, independent of God, led to devastating consequences for humanity. Both fascism and communism dehumanized Europe and led to the Holocaust and to millions and millions and millions of deaths. So both the ditch on the right and both the ditch on the left dehumanize humanity and lead to its undoing. The Genesis account of creation delivers us from the ditch on the right by calling us to see all of humanity through the frame of the image of God, to recognize that all human beings have equal value and dignity since we all partake equally in God's image. And the Genesis account of creation delivers us from the ditch on the left by calling us to find our unity in God, to recognize that apart from our shared participation in God's image, there can be no true basis or motivation for human dignity and value. As the story of the Bible unfolds, we eventually see that Jesus Christ is the true and eternal image of God. Human beings are made according to the image of God. But Jesus is the image of God. He is the one according to whose image we have been made. He is the one who binds all of humanity together. He is the animating life force, the garment of immortality that gives every human being their value and their dignity. It's true that we can and we do make our efforts to shed the image to, to disconnect ourselves from Christ so we can be our own little sovereigns. We can discard God's immortality. We can ultimately, in doing so, cease to be human. But as long as we are living, as long as we are drawing breath, we are still bearing his image. We still have the dignity that comes as a royal uh, ruler of what God has made. And we have the obligation to extend that dignity to our fellow man. Gerard Manley Hopkins, one of my uh, favorite poets, I only understand about 30% of what he, what he writes. I can't make sense of it all. I've got this poem here. I actually don't understand the whole poem either. I only understand this one section I'm going to read uh, to you. <laughs> But he does, he has this lovely poem about how all of humanity finds its value in Christ. How Christ is the one that stands above all things and that gives humanity our shared value. Not what we have in each other, but what 
each other collectively we have in God through Christ. That's where our value comes from and justifies and explains our unity as a people and as a race. So here's the poem that he writes about how the just man, the righteous man, learns to see the face of Christ in every face that he encounters. He says this, the just man acts in God's eyes what in God's eyes he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. And Hopkins, I think, has this tremendous insight really drawn from the Bible's perspective of humanity that we find our unity as a, as a race, as a single human race, we find our unity because we bear in ourselves the face of Christ. And so when I come to you granting dignity to you, it's not just because you're a human being independent of Christ. It's because Christ's face is in your face, because you wear his image. You bear his likeness. Jesus, when he was uh, speaking to his disciples of the day of judgment, he says that he would say this to those who come before him in judgment, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done it unto me. Because my image has been placed over every human being. My image has been placed over every human person and has granted dignity and value to every human person. So as we strive to live into harmony that our culture rightly celebrates, we as Christians need to live into that harmony in Christ, recognizing that our shared harmony comes not from because we participate in our creatureliness together, but because we all, whether we acknowledge it or not, participate in God's image. And it is our loyalty and our devotion to God that then drives our loyalty and our devotion to each other and to our fellow human beings. Mom? All right. God, our Father, thank you uh, for how you um, have given us a shared unity uh, in Christ, even that transcends our, our shared salvation in Christ, that we all bear the image of Christ. We all bear the image of God. Lord, help us to respect and to value each other in that light. Help us not try to find unity apart from that. Keep us out of the ditch on the left. Keep us out of the ditch on the right, Lord. Help us to walk the middle road of uh, recognizing and blessing each other as human beings, as those who bear the image and likeness of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.